You're listening to the Unitarian Universalist Church of Lexington podcast. Take a moment to center yourself in this space and enjoy this week's sermon. Before we get to our reading this morning, it'll be more of an audio reading. Um, let's bring up the image that will be centering us here. It's a famous reading that many of us know and love. It's a reading that's been shared in this space several times, the pale blue dot reflection by Carl Sagan, the late great astrophysicist Carl Sagan. And if you're unfamiliar with the history of that, uh, Voyager 1 on February 14, 1990, was just past Jupiter, I believe. And Carl Sagan said, wait, wait, turn the cameras around on Voyager and take a picture of the earth. And there we are, that little blue dot on that screen. So as you hear Carl Sagan in his own words reflecting on that, I invite you to stare right at that pale blue dot. The wonders of technology, my friends. Thank you. From this distant Ah. vantage point. The Earth might not seem of any particular interest. But for us, it's different. Consider again that dot. That's here. That's home. That's us. On it, everyone you love, everyone you know, everyone you ever heard of, every human being who ever was, lived out their lives. The aggregate of our joy and suffering Thousands of confident religions, ideologies, and economic doctrines. Every hunter and forager, every hero and coward, every creator and destroyer of civilization. Every king and peasant, every young couple in love, every mother and father, hopeful child, inventor and explorer, every teacher of morals, every corrupt politician, every superstar, every supreme leader, Every saint and sinner in the history of our species lived there on the mote of dust suspended in a sunbeam. The earth is a very small stage in a vast cosmic arena. Think of the rivers of blood spilled by all those generals and emperors so that in glory and triumph they could become the momentary masters of a fraction of a dot. Think of the endless cruelties visited by the inhabitants of one corner of this pixel on the scarcely distinguishable inhabitants of some other corner. How frequent their misunderstandings. How eager they are to kill one another. How fervent their hatreds. Our posturings Our imagined self-importance, the delusion that we have some privileged position in the universe, are challenged by this point of pale light. Our planet is a lonely speck in the great enveloping cosmic dark. In our obscurity, in all this vastness, there is no hint that help will come from elsewhere to save us from ourselves. 
The earth is the only world known so far to harbor life. There is nowhere else, at least in the near future, to which our species could migrate. Visit? Yes. Settle? Not yet. Like it or not, for the moment, the earth is where we make our stand. It has been said that astronomy is a humbling and character-building experience. There is perhaps no better demonstration of the folly of human conceits than this distant image of our tiny world. To me, it underscores our responsibility to deal more kindly with one another and to preserve and cherish the pale blue dot, the only home we've ever known. Kind of have to let that sink in. <laughs> you defend what you love. In the beginning, as all good stories go, long after the Big Bang, as far as we're concerned, but not long after, as far as the universe is concerned. After the formation of the Milky Way galaxy, the swirling of crucibles, the formation of Helios, also known as Sol, our sun, our planets in due time. The third rock from the sun, Earth, was formless and void, as it is said, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And then there was light and life and dry land and shifting tectonic plates and the chaos of volcanic eruptions, ice ages, megaflora and megafauna, and one day, yes, one day, human beings. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Kentucky was not always Kentucky in this story. There was not a landmass that was discernibly this place. This piece of land we're on didn't show up until the Ordovician period 510 million years ago. That's how the earth was. Pieces of a puzzle shifting here and there, locking into place, creating mountain ranges, deep caverns, a patchwork of land and water, creating the world as we know it today. And one day in the far future, when we're all gone, it'll be different again. This story of our Earth and relevant to us, the story of Kentucky, paints broad strokes. 460 million years ago, the oldest brachiopods and trilobites were present here and worldwide. 440 million years ago, the oldest land plants and animals of the Silurian period roamed the Earth, but likely not here. Because all through the Devonian period, you don't have to take notes on that, which spanned 410 to 360 million years ago, Kentucky was submerged under shallow, warm seas. It was a time of the oldest amphibians and abundant sea life. Every time you drive by those bluffs of shale or limestone, known as Ohio shale or Lexington limestone, you are looking back into time time when Kentucky was tropical and a salty sea. Fast forward another 100 million years or so and the oldest dinosaurs and mammals appeared in the Triassic period. 
Keep going, though. Our story isn't over yet. And by this time, the landmass that would be known as Kentucky one day was mostly pieced together. Still submerged in many ways, the rivers and creeks we know and love were not yet fully formed. And I'm sorry to say, from Marshall County to Fulton County and all the way up to Ballard, they were not yet part of the party. That landmass didn't shift into gear for some time yet. And places like Davies County were a massive marshland that spanned most of what was then Western Kentucky. Our story requires us to take larger leaps from 100 million years ago to over 10,000 years ago, to up to 10,000 years ago, the first humans eventually arrived. The climate stabilized, it got warmer here, killing off the shift and shifting the populations of mammoths and mastodons, and believe it or not, giant beavers, giant land sloths, saber-toothed tigers in Kentucky, congratulations, and several other megafauna. Glad they're not around at night. <laughs> <laughs> the timeline speeds up when humanity gets into the picture, though there is little evidence that the Clovis people, who were amongst the very first human inhabitants of this land, and Clovis is just a catch-all name for peoples of Paleo-America, long before any human memory can stretch, before civil civilization itself, there's little evidence that they hunted those mastodons and mammoths and saber-toothed tigers. But they likely did. The next 8,000 years of human history sees small native social groups forming. There's evidence of humans and dogs being buried together, tools and clay flooring, and the relatively new white-tailed deer, mussels, fish, oysters, turtles, and elk were the primary food sources. Fast forward again, the woodlands people, the Hopewell and Adena settle in, the great burial mounds of the Mississippian peoples were present, such as Mount Horeb site number one here in Fayette County. Our story could keep going and we could spend all day here. The Hopewell and Adena eventually became relatives to the many tribes who inhabited this land. The Cherokee, the Chickasaw, the Lenape, the Mesopelia, Shauna and Wyandotte, Uchi, and a dozen more. Hunting bands of Iroquois and Illinois and Miami also roamed here and there on temporary journeys. And then the first Europeans arrived in 1673, roughly 100 years after their arrival, the very last Shawnee village in the entire Commonwealth of Kentucky, known as Indian Old Fields in Clark County, but also known as Eskipakatiki, was abandoned due to forced relocation. Now you might have noticed the history of the land has turned into history of the people. That's an interesting thing to note. The rest of the history leading up until this moment has its moments, of course, both heartbreaking and hopeful. Once lauded as the Athens of the West, Lexington had a promising future, despite being one of the largest slave markets in the South or the West. It gets confusing what exactly Kentucky was and is. And that sounds familiar to many of us, right? Ask anyone, you get a lot of answers. Are we the South, the Midwest, Appalachia, the redheaded stepchild of America? And come the 19th and 20th centuries, a lot of our stories, our stories, your stories, start to emerge here, at least for those of us who are not indigenous Americans. Some of our relatives came here because they had no choice. Many of us have families reaching back into deep history. Some of us are brand new. My own family story has English and Scandinavian relatives working tobacco farms in Breckenridge County. 
though most of my relatives have ties to the upper Midwest. Why tell this story? These broad strokes here. Why leave out millions of years of history and focus on the things I did? Why leave out all of the minutiae of human tragedy and triumph? Why attempt such a story at all in the first place? I don't expect you to remember what I told you, but I do encourage you to learn more. My hope is this, that you made a connection with the land that you are on in that story. Was it the early years of Kentucky as a tropical sea that you connected with? The emergence of land mammals, the appearance of the first humans, or more recent history, your family and its connection to this place? Or simply you and your story here? Now, I can appreciate the poetry of the world's religious creation myths, right, in the beginning and such and such. But nothing can compare to the awe-inspiring, wonder-inducing narrative that is called everybody's story. The big bang to the emergence of Kentucky from those tropical seas, to the smashing of tectonic plates to form the Appalachian Mountains, to now, to here, to this very moment. Everybody's story. No one is left out. And the invitation for you is to know your connection to that story, to this land. And if you don't quite know it, to discover it, to rekindle that connection. In my estimation, one of the greatest tragedies of modern life is forgetting that we are intricately connected to the land we are part of. And the call for us is to remember that there is no returning to nature, but quite simply, it's remembering that we've been a part of nature all along. What is your place in the grand narrative that is Kentucky or Indiana or Illinois or wherever you're from or wherever you're joining us from or wherever you're joining us from or where you live in across Fayette County or beyond? What is your place in that story? And what intimate connections do you have with the place that you're currently a part of? Now, if that word intimate sounds too gushy for you, good. Get out of your head and fall in love with the earth once more because we defend what we love. My connection to this place is not just the story of long ago relatives in Western Kentucky. Really, that's a story I'm loosely connected with. Mine is more present, emerging. As the waters of Lake Michigan are in my very blood, I'm letting the place that is Lexington, the place I inhabit, infuse itself into my bones. All at once, as that happens, there is heartbreak and wonder. I told you part of that grand narrative that is Kentucky this morning for a few reasons. First, so much of that story has nothing to do with human beings. Before Kentucky even had a name, it existed in a variety of ways just fine without us. Second, Rekindling our connection with the land we inhabit is crucial to our well-being. I believe that wholeheartedly. I need not cite the studies on how connecting with nature is just plain good for you. They're a Google search away. And third, there is a new chapter of our story emerging. It's a story we don't quite know the ending of yet, but it isn't looking good. I'm, of course, speaking of the climate crisis and the existential threats we face as a species. 
Carl Sagan's words earlier feel more pressing than ever. Here we are on a small speck of dust in a great enveloping cosmic dark. And that small speck of dust, planet Earth, has put us all on notice. The message is clear if you're paying attention. Things are about to radically change faster than we could have imagined. I'm not going to read tea leaves here and tell you what will happen, but the studies are clear in one thing, irrevocable change is on its way. And it will radically shape the future of civilization. Some go a step further and say that civilization will collapse. Others say it will simply change radically. Some say it's the end of humanity itself. Others say it's the end of everything. A phrase to sum up all of those opinions is one we've seen on street corner signs from self-made prophets for ages. It's the end of the world as we know it. What is right now, right here, will end. Even if there should be some technological marvel to lessen the impacts of the climate crisis, how we are living right now is on hospice. For many of us, that is welcome news. For others, it's a time of mourning. Now we could simply just leave that as it is. Here's the existential threat. Humanity will be changed, but we're not quite sure how. Many of us will die before it gets really bad. Maybe there'll be some human ingenuity that saves the day and oh God, as we even begin to think about that. Gas prices are high. The bills need to be paid. I'm taking care of my aging parents or I'm aging myself. How will I support my children and a million other crises face us on a day-to-day -day basis? Oh, by the way, COVID is still out there. Who has time for these existential questions? That's all fair and I get it. I'd rather pour my energy into a million different things instead of imagining Kentucky filled with climate refugees one day or even imagining myself as a climate refugee. We need not sit and ponder in order to adapt though. And adaptation can start here if we're motivated enough. In 2018, Professor Jem Bendel published a paper called Deep Adaptation, a map for nav navigating climate tragedy. In this paper, Bendel argued that the climate crisis is inevitable I just need to remind you because this is just so prevalent in our world. The consensus is clear, climate crisis is real, period, period. So in this paper, Bendel argues that it's inevitable. The collapse of society is coming, he says, oh my goodness, and we're all in for a world of hurt. But the problem is we're in a state of denial. This denial, Bendel argues, is preventing us from facing the very serious threats awaiting us. And it's also preventing us from coping with what's yet to come. Now, it sounds difficult to cope with something when you don't quite know what's going to happen, right? But Bendel, again, goes a step further. He says, cope with the idea that everything as we know it right now is going to come to an end. Have that unnerving, uncomfortable, deep dive into an existential crisis right now. So you'll be ready for what's yet to come. Now this paper was self-published <laughs> and it led to praise and significant backlash. The backlash is interesting because it also attempts to describe the unknowable like Bendel did. 
Critics respond with, well, it's not going to be that bad, right? And so on. Bendel's motive is simple. We need to engage this premise as a precautionary principle. And he gave that engagement a name called a deep adaptation. Since that time of publishing that paper, the Deep Adaptation Forum was founded for people to start supporting one another as they figure out what it even means to adapt to what is yet to come. Movements like Extinction Rebellion were birthed from the paper. And all the while, climate indicators and benchmarks have exceeded previous predictions in a terrible way. I want to pause for a moment to name the obvious. This is depressing, right? But I encourage us all to avoid that very human tendency to shove it as far back into our minds as possible. Even if you will not live to see the worst of it, you can still be a part of the work of adaptation. And yes, it hurts. This is scary. And as human beings, there's only one thing for us to do. Adapt and change. Now, this deep adaptation form doesn't give you complete answers, but it instead offers guiding questions for us individually and communally to begin that work of adapting. Now, why questions? Well, other than a radical shift in our democracy and way of living, where people are engaged and everybody votes, and significant change is undertaken with <laughs> minimal resistance, that is what is available to us to make small changes, to move on to slightly bigger changes. And should we see movements where radical changes are happening to support them wholeheartedly and so on and so forth, and to be existentially ready for whatever comes. That just sounds real easy, right? Just become existentially ready. Great. You're good to go. I'm right there with you. I hardly know where to begin, but deep adaptation, and the Deep Adaptation Forum offers us some guiding principles, what they call the four R's. First, resilience. What do we most value that we want to keep and how? Second, relinquishment. What do we need to let go of as to not make matters worse? Third, restoration. What could we bring back to help us with these difficult times? Fourth, reconciliation. With what and whom shall we make peace as we awaken to our eventual mortality? Resilience, relinquishment, restoration, reconciliation. Now, that sounds like a lot to tackle mentally, socially, culturally, and so on. Yeah, it is. So why not begin at least here with the first R, resilience. Our capacity to adapt begins with being resilient. And from the guiding principles of the deep adaptation form, resilience begins with honoring what you value, what you want to keep, and how you'll do it. Or in other words, we defend what we love. There's no way for me or anyone to talk about the climate crisis without us leaving, feeling some weight on our shoulders. I know my colleague, the Reverend Michael Dowd, who preached here a few months ago, was very clear in his message, humanity is on hospice. Time to give thanks before it's all over. I won't go that far. I am unapologetically bound up in the idolatry of hope. And I believe there is hope for us still, whatever may come. And it begins with resilience, with slowly learning to adapt, to having the courage to wrestle with this harsh reality. 
Think back to where we began, the story that is everybody's story, the story of our universe down to the story of this land. Do you have an intimate connection with the land you are on? Does the word intimate freak you out a little bit? Are you worried about having your heart broken over and over again? Because I know my heart is broken. And my relationship with the land is not as close as some of you in this room. But it's a work in progress. And that is where I believe we need to start. That's where adaptation begins. A deep connection to wherever you are. What is the name of the watershed we are on right here? Some of you know it, but not most most of you don't. How about where you live in Lexington? What's the name of that watershed, the source of your water? Many of you may have some ideas about the peoples who inhabited these lands before you, but if you don't, learn their names, learn their histories. This fall, this beautiful autumn around us, what are the birds that you will see traversing the sky as they go south? What late-blooming wildflowers are now giving up their petals to autumn? Intimate connection to the land. Know your connection. Know your place in the story. Know you are not separate. As Unitarian Universalists, our seventh principle tells us that we affirm the interdependent web of existence of which we are all a part. We are inseparable from nature. When this world hurts, we hurt. When this world thrives, we thrive. That was a great way of summing up our seventh principle. And I'm convinced the more we break down the walls between human and nature, the more our hearts will break and heal, break and heal, break and heal, adapt and change again and again. So dear friends, you defend what you love. May it be so. Blessed be. Amen. I hope you've enjoyed this week's podcast. If you would like to learn more about us, please visit our website at www.ucl.org, where you can find more information about our grounds, staff, and upcoming events. You can also subscribe to our e-news there and learn about our virtual service offerings. We'll see you next week.